Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any host or guest individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Hi, I'm back. Good evening. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch. Uh, I am your host, along with Rebecca Banks. I'm Diane Kennedy, and we are the authors of Bright Not Broken, and we are the host of this program on the Coffee Clatch Network. And we are very excited tonight to welcome a very special guest. She has a wonderful book out, and we have been talking about this for weeks, and we can't wait to talk to her tonight. And her name is Dr. Joy Davis. Are you with us, Joy? Yes, I'm, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you. We thought we lost you there for a minute, but we have you back. Okay, yes. Okay. Well, let me just tell our audience a little bit about um, what we're going to be talking about tonight and give just a brief background of um, of your wonderful contributions. Um, you have an award-winning book, Bright, um, Bright, Talented, and Black, A Guide for Families of African-American Gifted Learners. And these are considered twice minorities. These children face obstacles and challenges, um, sometimes above and beyond what our normal twice exceptional children can face. You offer practical advice based on your personal experience as both a parent and a gifted educated, uh, a, a gifted educational professional. And you are a career educator with over 30 years of experience as a practitioner, a scholar, an author, and a consultant. And as we were just discussing, a member of the NAGC Board of Directors. And your areas of special expertise are diversity education and gifted education. Um, Bright, Talented, and Black, which is a wonderful book, by the way, is the first of its kind to specifically address the advocacy needs of black families raising gifted students. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm very, very glad to be here, and I'm excited about sharing uh, Bright, Talented, and Black with your audience and responding to your questions and concerns. Uh, the book has been well-received nationwide over the past, I would say, two years or so, and um, I've uh, just talked to lots and lots of people for whom the book has, uh, has uh, touched a, a nerve but in many ways, the nerve that's been touched is one that says it affirms so much about what they've needed over the years to help them to be better advocates for these special children. And and tell us, you've been in the field for 30 years, so what um, what led you to actually put the book together and and feel that this was an area that you needed to really call some attention to? 
Well, uh, as I was uh, as a practitioner, in particular in the in local school districts, I served as a gifted education director, and then I had a great opportunity uh, back in the mid to late nineties of becoming a Commonwealth of Virginia here in my home. And in that role, I had many opportunities to work with local school district advisory committees, which were comprised mainly of parents, and then, of course, uh, with uh, school personnel. And what I found uh, was that there was a great lack of advocacy information uh, among the parent population, and in particular, parents of children who had not had the services or had access to gifted services, in particular African-American parents, rural parents, you know, parents who, who had children who were just as gifted but were not as involved in gifted education because they didn't have advocacy information. They didn't know how to talk the talk, so to speak, of gifted ed. And so when this opportunity came along, uh, when the publisher, uh, bless his heart, Jim Webb is just a wonderful person, asked me, are you ready to write this book? And I thought, well, yes, indeed, yes, because it's time. <laughs> it's time for these parents to, to know the language, to have the information, and to have uh, what I call the insider tips on, on gifted ed. And uh, so this all helps their, their children, helps school districts. It helps us all to, to build a better case, I think, you know, for these children. Yes, absolutely. Yes. It's go ahead, Becky. Were you no, going to ask a question? No, I was just thinking of how how grateful um, I was to be reading this book. I teach in a what we call a PLA, which school which is persistently low achieving, and okay. um, what we have and it and I have um, you know well we have ninety percent of our population is on free and reduced lunches. And mm-hmm. so they qualify. So we we run into a lot of minority students and um, majority students as well who remain unidentified because of race and yes. or poverty issues. Yes. And um, I love the way that your book is so readable and accessible for parents who mm-hmm. um, need to know how to confront, um, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but how to confront educators Mm -hmm. about the needs of their children. Because parents are indeed the first ones who recognize, I I have this exciting young intellect and young personality, young person Mm -hmm. here, and they don't know how to approach it because they figure, I think a lot of times the assumption is that the teachers will take care of it. And as a classroom teacher, um, I know that it's it's a it's extremely challenging to go up against the forces and to request evals and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's just really so having an advocacy book for parents, Joy, is just a tremendous tremendous um, addition to the gifted library. I just think it's wonderful. So thank you. You're welcome, and I think you 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 know you hit the nail on the head. You know to uh, to be able to. And you say confront, and again, not in a negative way, but just to be able to sit at the same table and Mm -hmm. go toe-to-toe with a group of people who have their own language, who have their own understandings, that's built in a field, you know, uh, that's uh, well over 50 years old, almost 100 years old. Just this past week, I was in Indianapolis, and we celebrated the National Association for Gifted Children's 60th anniversary. 
So in 60 years, you know, this field has, has built its own discipline, its own body of literature, its own uh, group of scholars. Uh, they're, 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 there's a lot more to gifted ed than general educators even understand, and you oh, won't yeah. know until you get involved, you know, in the field. And I was fortunate in uh, being um, being able to uh, come upon the, the language and the literature through coursework. Uh, one of the greats in the field, and I don't mind me to mention her name because she's one of my favorite people of all time, and that's Joyce Fantasco-Basta. Uh, Joyce uh, came into a district that I was working in way out in a little rural area in Virginia and taught a course for us one semester. And I, even the superintendent took the class. It was so exciting, you know. <laughs> and after the class was over, she was in the midst of starting her graduate program at William & Mary, and she tapped me on the shoulder one day. She said, Joy, you need to be in this program. And I'm like, I can't get into a grad program now. I've got a family, you know. i got uh-huh. a family. <laughs> I can't do any of this right now. And when I did, my my eyes and my whole world was opened. And not only was it open, but I found a place that I fit into. And I said, oh, my goodness, this is what's been missing, you know, for yes. me, for my children, for the people mm-hmm. I know in my family, community, for all these wonderful kids that I knew there was a spark, but I didn't quite understand exactly what it was all about. And, and mm-hmm. then once I got hold of the work, uh, my, my service nature, my nature as a servant so said to me, okay, Joy, as soon as you can build up an arsenal <laughs> of weaponry, you're going to share this. And so this is uh, the basis for the book. You know, it's my arsenal that I've been building up. I built up over a period of time, and I was just very excited to, to share, very excited. Well, and I get, I, I, I get so... Um, if you will, saddened by how many parents I encounter who struggle financially, economically, who struggle as single parents, um, a lot of single parent families out there, and for them to even wrap their minds around the idea that their child is gifted, let alone that they're gifted, because right. so often this is a generational trait, but because life has been so challenging and so difficult, mm-hmm. it's it's hard for people to be able to embrace um, their own abilities and to recognize mm-hmm. it in their families. And when you, when I finally open the door to that conversation, which I do frequently, um, I'm thinking of Elgin today. God love him. He came to me and said, Ms. Cole, I, I go by, I, I, I published under my maiden name, um, but I uh, teach under my married name. He goes, Ms. Cole, uh, when are you going to start that urban debate team? Because I want the scholarship. Do you know you can get thirty thousand dollars worth of scholarship money? That's right. Because it's like yes, Elgin, exactly. And and you and so many others are are why we keep trying to open people's eyes and awareness um, to giftedness, the presence of it, and in in all populations. But one thing you brought up was the idea that. Um, that the minorities in particular, um, in your book you bring this up, but you don't mind if I turn the attention to the book for a minute. Um, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. How, how much discrimination there is, how much um, inability to recognize that um, mm-hmm. giftedness is a possibility in minorities. And um, if you don't mind speaking to that a little bit, I'm sure our mm-hmm. listeners would appreciate it. Okay. Well, um, you know, one of the things that we have recognized 
in the field of gifted education. Maybe not everyone, but a core group of us have. And uh, we think that throughout the literature, there's always been the presence of this understanding that there was a discriminatory factor. There was some discrimination going on in gifted education when after uh, the 60 years that we've been in, um, the, in the business uh, as a field, we are still facing uh, the, the types of underrepresentation numbers when we look nationally at the all rights uh, data report and we look nationally, we look statewide and we look into school districts and even, you know, going, you know, down to the to the ground and looking in school districts and seeing that when there are programs, uh, in many cases, the majority of the programs are serving the majority population students and that would be white students. And in most cases, students who are, whose parents have more means, you know, the more affluent yes. population has better access you know, to gifted programs. And so, um, you know, we've, we have, we've seen a number of reports coming forth in the last few years, seen a number of national studies, and we're still looking at these data, but, you know, when it comes down to who these people are, who that little guy is you just spoke of in, in the community, you know, these reports don't mean a whole lot at all unless we can actually get down and meet their needs and help school personnel understand that we all have an obligation to uh, look for these children and an yes. obligation to do the best we can to nurture their gifts. You know, it's our responsibility, and we need support. Certainly we need that support. But so for many people, though, there are uh, there is this, this sole issue of to be gifted, you have to be a certain type of a child. You know, you have yes. to, you know, you have to, walk a certain way, you have to look a certain way, you have to talk a certain way, and they, you know, so if that be the case, then there's this other set of students who would never be recognized because they don't fit into that pattern, they don't fit into that little norm, and they don't fit into the, um, as I used to call them, the goody two-shoes kind of kid, you know. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> you know, so I have um, I have three children, and um, they're all, of course, adults now, and they were all identified young as gifted learners, And uh, but they were each very different, you know, in their own, they are, they're very different individuals. They, you know, so I have everything in my family from the introvert to the great ex extrovert, you know. So as a yes. parent and as an educator, I recognize that, and I saw my children in this literature. Again, as I studied, mm -hmm. I would see them in the writings of these people, and I said, well, that's this one, that's that one, that's that one, you know. But I was learning that along the way, and so I was able to embrace not only my own children but then other children. And so the, the idea that educators need to have training in order to embrace these children differently is, is, is key. It's really, really key. And, um, the, uh, and until that happens, then we, we, these children are going to continuously be, um, be pigeonholed. They're going to yes. be set. All kinds of barriers are going to be set before them that they will never have access. Parents will just have to keep on jumping through all these quadrillion oops you like my word, a trillion, you know. <laughs> so you have to keep jumping through the hoops in order to get the same child who has the same uh, set of, of intellectual traits that another child may have but doesn't look the same, you know. So we do have to recognize that we, we are still living in a society where race plays a great role in how we view individuals. It is. We just live there. We're here. It's now. Uh, we're not in whatever this thing is that was called a post-racial society. We're not beyond race yet. It would, it would be wonderful if we were, but we're not. 
the numbers don't lie in gifted ed. I'm looking at the national data report here right in front of me on my screen. And in the nation, if we're looking at school districts that have a district programs, 25% of the population in those districts are Hispanic students. But in those same districts, only 16% of those students are identified as gifted. In African-Americans, right. 19% of the general population of districts having gifted programs. So they're 19% of those populations are 19% of the students in those districts are African-American, but only 10%. So there's that, that underrepresentation. It, you know, it's there. It's, it's everywhere. And who's going to take responsibility for it? I think we all have to take responsibility for it. I think we all have to begin looking at, you know, what role are we playing as individuals, as groups? Uh, what are we doing to make a difference for these children? What are we doing to remove all of these barriers? You know, what well, are we doing individually? So, and I know at the local level you're seeing it, you know, on a daily basis. I know you are. Well, if and the I other can, thing, oh, go ahead, Diane. Well, no, I was just going to interject as I'm I'm listening. I'm, I love the, this conversation, and I'm thinking, you know, how can we make this a much wider conversation because it definitely needs to be. And as I'm listening, even I'm gaining a greater appreciation for, you know, uh, my heart has been in with my own children with twice exceptional issues. You know, I have the son who people have looked at for years and years since preschool and said he's smart enough to know better. And then we discovered that he has Asperger's syndrome, and that you know all the smarts in the world does not help your your social hurdles and your social challenges. Of course, we right. know that, and and that mm-hmm. it's just that his intelligence covered up for the fact that he actually had a disability. So that's the twice exceptional part. And I know, mm-hmm. um, I think it was in one of your reviews where I saw. Somebody mentioned that these children actually with this with the social stigma and what we're dis- discussing when you know you're talking about such limited um exposure being that the gifted field is so predominantly white and so these minorities are not you know that's another hurdle so now we have thrice exception exceptionality if I'm saying that word right and <laughs> it, mm-hmm. it it's you know, it's it's like a double dose of twice exceptionality. That's what I looked at it as. And, you know, it's it's shameful because conversations like this, we can't eliminate autism. We have to understand that. We can't eliminate the other disabilities that are mm-hmm. learning disabilities, but we certainly can eliminate forms of prejudice and misunderstanding. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and what you just said is so profound. And, I, and again, we do need to have uh, these conversations more openly. We're big, we're, we're big kids, you know. We can talk right. about this openly. We can, we can say, okay, uh, race is the elephant in the room, you know. Let's 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 talk through the elephant, and eventually the elephant will leave. But if we don't recognize it, and we as adults don't say this is an issue, and one of the reasons why these children are not being identified is that we are still carrying, you know, vestiges. In our, our school systems, there's this systemic institution, you know, that we are dealing with that's systemically discriminating, discriminating, you know, where we are hauling off these kids and looking at their deficits and hauling them off into uh, programs that deal with their deficits and not at all looking at what their strengths might be. Let me give you an example. I was in a school district um, 
uh, some time ago, and I was I, I went in. Um, this was uh, my um, I was a district director, and it was a mid-sized, uh, I'd say, urban district, and it had a large number of uh, Title One schools, but it was not a predominantly uh, low-performing district. So it had the uh, the, the good fortune, I guess they thought, of having, you know, some high-performing schools, and then they had this set of Title I schools. Well, in the district at the time, the um, the school, the psychology department or the assessment department had administered the cognitive abilities test, the COGAT test, on a universal level to all second graders. They'd done it for years. And they the, the test scores were just kind of sitting in, you know, in the office and nobody was doing anything with them. And when I came in and I asked, I said, so what kinds of assessments are we doing, you know, universally throughout the district, this was mentioned to me. And I said, well, what, who's doing something with the test? What do we know about the test scores? Have we disaggregated the data by schools? Are we looking at it? And nobody had done anything with the data. And I, I was, you know, it, it kind of, I was like, what? You know, then I thought, hmm, okay, this is an opportunity for me to take a moment and I had a, a really good staff that they give me uh, access to some teachers. And of the teachers, two of them were school psych people, which is excellent. So these two young ladies and myself sat down together, and over a period of time, it took us a little bit, but we went through all of the test score data, and then we went through it by school. And then we broke it down into those Title I schools. And we found in that data a significant number of students who were attending Title I schools who had test scores on the COGAT in the 85th percentile and above, the 90th and mm. three groups, wow. the 95th percentile and above, mm. and nobody had paid attention to it. Mm-hmm. Oh. And I'm sorry, nobody. go ahead. So, these, so I take this into the school district, and then I go to school by school, and I start talking to them about, you know, identifying underrepresented kids and how they might show themselves in the classroom. And then I said, oh, by the way, we also have this hard data here that suggests to us that there's these number of students in your school now, the same school that somebody said to me, they, they, pardon my, my grammar, but there ain't no gifted kids in this school. I don't even know why you're here, Dr. Joy, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, the same school, and I say, in this school right now, there are these children, and if they can perform this well, given the circumstances that they live in, and the fact that they are in this particular school whose resources are so very limited at the second grade level, that something is going on within the child, and we haven't, we haven't met that because we haven't seen them as smart. We haven't seen them in that way. And so, yes, we have a long, long way to go. We've got to recognize the issues. We have to talk about it, and we have to be um, radical. And, and sometimes I guess myself and a few others are seen as being, you know, radical because we, you know, we keep bringing this issue up and, you can't sweep it under the rug, but you can do something about it and it can make uh, situations better for large numbers of children across the nation. Well, and I think teacher education is 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 one of the keys. That we have, first of all, it's such um, inconsistency because we don't have a consistent um, education programs from state to state for gifted because there there's very little. It's just assumed that if you're smart enough, you're going to get it. So mm-hmm. we get very little instruction as teachers about gifted students. We get even less about gifted minorities. We right. get even less, and we get less about twice exceptional students. Right. But what mm-hmm. we have is um, we go into the classroom, and I say we collectively as teachers, and we're in the classroom, and we have these students who have different learning styles, um, students right. who come from 
low income um, and who are minority students, especially African American students, tend to favor interpersonal learning styles, which for the classroom isn't always the, the what what teachers like because it's a no. lot of talking, a lot of engagement, a lot of mm-hmm. back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. so it, it it looks like chaos from the outside unless you've orchestrated it and kept the kids mm-hmm. on task. So we have this interpersonal learning style that's not recognized. The kids look disruptive. And then you, I don't know if you found this in your research, but I can recall running across where higher rates of minority students, African-American boys in particular, are diagnosed with ADHD um, and put on medication to control behaviors. And what we're doing is we're probably overlooking some of the overexcitabilities in these students, some Mm -hmm. of the the gifted predispositions, and we're, we're just ignoring it because of either ignorance, because of prejudice, or because people don't want to change the way it's always been done. I'm not sure, but it's something that as an educator and as an advocate, it has frustrated me to no end how many mothers I sit down with whose sons are on some form of medication because they're acting out in class. Well, we all know that behaviors, if kids' needs aren't being met, they are going to act out. And so I think we need to kind of fall back and look at what are we missing in these minority students, not what's wrong with them, but what not are what's we wrong with them. What are we missing? So in our training, uh, in the training that I do, uh, I bring out, and I'm just so excited to hear you uh, speak about these, these learning styles and behavior uh, styles that are, are innate to these children yes. that have them in a school system, on a school setting, that makes those kinds of styles look as if something is wrong with them, and then they end up on the roles of uh, LD students and or in behavior, uh, on the behavior roles, and they are the highest percentage of students being suspended and expelled mm-hmm. from school, you know. So, so all those numbers, somebody's got to be looking at those numbers and saying something must be wrong here. But but we're not looking at it enough. We're not going to bat enough. And we're not because if we do, we're going to have to say that what we've done is wrong. So so yes, right. I do. <laughs> I have a a chart that I share with us with the teachers when I do district wide training, and it's, and the chart has shared cultural traits and learning preferences. And I and I use uh, that I put these in that have we found in the literature that are reflective of African American and Hispanic students as well. And so when you say these students have a high verbal ability and then in the back of the teacher's mind they're saying, well, they're not reading well. I said I didn't say that they were not reading well. <laughs> I said they have, they have a tendency and a propensity to be very fluent and elaborate in their, in their writing and in their speaking, in their yeah. speaking. Okay, so we talk about them being situational problem solvers and demonstrating practical intelligence, and then I send them to the work of Robert Sternberg, who talks Sternberg, who talks about the different types of ways that people can be intelligent. I'm not talking about multiple intelligences uh, from mm-hmm. Gar- from Gardner. I'm talking about practical intelligence, situational relevancy. Uh-huh. You know, so you know, so and then people say, oh, that's like having street sense or, or like having common sense. I said, now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. But are we <laughs> to that in the classroom? No, no, we're not. And then this whole idea of these children being energetic, and then uh, uh, Dr. Wade Boykin from Howard University uh, many years ago did his work in the inner city schools in Washington, and he labeled their behavior as vervistic. He used the word verve in relationship, you know, to the way that those children were behaving, and then tied that to they behave like that in school because that's the way things were at home. And you're right, there's a lot of noise. 
There's a lot of engagement. There's a lot of talking over top of each other, um, but mm-hmm. it's all very interpersonal, and they will capture all the information, but you have to give them that freedom. And if you're not giving them that freedom and it's being mandated, especially the little boys, to sit still in this chair in this row, you know, for the for all morning long until it's time to go to um, to lunch, and then all afternoon long, then you're taking away from them their very um, the very strength that they were born with. You know, the very attitudes and the very behaviors that come right out of their cultural group. So there's there's, there's something wrong with us as educators that we're not taking um, all of this information we know because my list I didn't just it didn't just come out of my heart and my head. It came out of the literature, <laughs> you know. It came right yeah. from the work that's been done, and we need to take this so that I, when I share this with teachers, and then they'll go, aha, oh, yes. And then I say, can you think of some students that this might be reflective of? And then they'll start thinking about these children differently. So if we would take these and then look at the traits that we see in when we look at the misdiagnoses of children who could be gifted, but they're being diagnosed with something else. Then, then we can we can get somewhere, but the training isn't isn't there. It's just not there. No, we're we're not, not doing enough. Mm-mm, it's not, and it's sad. And I'm and I whenever I talk to teachers and I hear them say, the under, who understand this and don't see these children as being you know uh, so different that something is wrong with them that they're not. No, not at all. You know, there's nothing wrong with them. And so if you've been in the classroom for a while, you've seen it, and so you know who these children are. You have a great respect and admiration for their ability just to be able to function in a school setting that's so contradictory to what good what should be happening to help stimulate their minds, you know. But um but yeah, it's that's that's a big piece of it. We could talk all night long about um about teacher training. Truly we could. Um I don't want to take okay. up all the conversation there. So ask me some more questions if you would. Well <laughs> I, I, mean, I I uh, wanna say I wanna point out and you know, other than having you know, similar similar points that we're all agreeing on tonight. And in our book, Bright Not Broken, we have felt so strongly about, you know, we get, we have gotten, and we've talked about this before, some mm-hmm. simple criticism that, that just seems to be a misunderstanding of, well, I why do I need to know or, or how can I can't change a diagnostic system so just tell me how to help my child but we try to make them understand unless we help the professionals who are helping your child you're going to keep mm-hmm. coming back up against this brick wall and right. and so it, it is important this topic of teacher education educating the educators about these issues and getting the mm-hmm. parents involved in doing so in sharing information sometimes mm-hmm. you know it's as simple as that but until we reach it on that level, that is the way because every teacher reaches, you know, 60 or more students, uh, you know, um, obviously more than that. I know <laughs> Rebecca probably uh, has a lot more students than that in the course of a day. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. It, it is an important topic. And, um, you know, one of the I, – I'll ask a question about one of the, one of the things that you spoke about, and I'd like to have you talk about this because I think it's where your insights and obviously the research and the work you have done to advocate for these children is remarkable. But tell us about the issue. One of the issues um, that you speak about is the burden of race and how – Many African Americans live with the understanding that as individuals, they they can represent their entire race to the majority culture, whether it's 
as a success or as a failure. Can you explain mm-hmm. how that impacts the burden and responsibility that these children feel on top of all of this, especially when they know that their potential is is high? Yeah, when they when uh, as African Americans uh, in in American society. Um, um, there is this uh, kind of a hidden rule that in, in many contexts and circles, we will uh, not be judged by our own performability as an individual, but by the, um, the presuppositions that mainstream culture has about the whole group as a whole. And so from the perspective of a gifted child or a high-ability learner, someone who's uh, demonstrated and is able to demonstrate that they uh, can function in a in a high end learning environment, a, 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 an environment where they're being charged with critical thinking, and you know they're they're responding in in a way that helps everyone to know that they do have great great potential. That child, particularly as they become an adolescent, and they're much more aware not only of them themselves as a person within the educational environment, but also in, in society, and they hear things and they they hear what's going on in the media. That child carries with them a, a, a strong burden, and that burden is to, to represent. And we use that a lot. We say we represent, I'm representing, you know. Uh, and so we know from the time we grow up that wherever we go, uh, especially when we go into settings where we may be the only one or one of the few, that we mm-hmm. represent where we go, our whole race goes. Everybody goes with us. And let me give you one very, uh, uh, very clear uh, example. John sure. Edgar Wideman wrote a book. I'm going to say this real quickly. I think I've noted this in the, in the um, in my book. If not, I'd, I'd like to share this story. Uh, there's a book he he wrote called Reuben. And in the story of Reuben, there's a there's a there's a there's a short vignette there of a young boy who is a first generation college graduate, college attending, out of his neighborhood, out of his community. He's the first kid. He's the one who got to go to college. You know, he got out. You know, and then mm-hmm. he went to an Ivy League school. And 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 in the story, he talks about going to college, going to class every morning in this huge, beautiful campus and this brick buildings and stone walls, and they have, he walks into these buildings very slowly, and he's very, you know, he admires the environment. He's very kind of, he's kind of nervous, but he's also feeling proud of himself. But as he goes into the building every day, he feels himself carrying with him one of the members of the community on his back. And so mm-hmm. the story goes on, and each day he goes on, he has somebody else on his back, and another on his back, and another on his back. And so he describes each of the people in the community and the family, Uncle Joe, you know, the guy on the corner, the the, the old man from church, you know, the, the lady who, who said to him, you go do your best now, boy, you know. So he describes <laughs> what it feels like to carry those people with him everywhere he goes. And so he's just bent right over, you know, as he goes into the building every day. And I read that, and I, and I just I, I thought, oh, my God, that's the burden. That's the heavy burden. And of course, I've had that burden. You know, I've had other family members that I know have had that burden. So we have to go in and show the very best of ourselves. And yet we're still challenged by the society that says to us, you're never going to be good enough, good enough unless you work twice as hard. Mm-hmm. Again, half as much. So we, you know, we have all these little um, proverbs that we've been taught all of our lives in our own group that says, "So this is the way you have to behave when you get out there, and, and don't forget you're representing." So the burden of being African American, in particular, in American culture, in American society, especially a, a bright black kid, um, within the context of the of the of the whole or the mainstream culture, is huge. Now, that uh, comes with that also the blessing of being who you are and being proud of who you are. And so that's that, you know, dichotomous 
feeling, you know, that we have. But first there's the burden, and then there's the blessing. W.B. Du Bois spoke about it as a dual consciousness, you know, being two people in one, you know, and, and being kind oh. of pulled and tugged, you know. So, you know, it's been in the literature. Uh, it's been in the sociological work for years and years. Uh, I think that taking this information and bringing it into the world of gifted education helps, uh, helps bring more insight into what these children actually go through you know, on a day-to-day basis. I hope that helps <laughs> clear that up oh, a little bit. That was great. Go ahead. Well, and it does, especially when you think of, you take one aspect of identity, mm-hmm. such as language. Mm-hmm. And the language, that, um, the, the language that is standard American English and the language that, that most African-American and minority students speak outside of the classroom or the workplace, Mm -hmm. very different. It's very different. If you Mm -hmm. go behind the walls of a sorority house that Mm -hmm. is a minority sorority, it sounds very different from what you hear in the classroom. And to carry the burden of that dual identity and to always have to be aware that you have to put on a certain face rather Mm than be who you are and able to connect socially the way that you would normally connect through the language that you would use. That is just one area where Mm -hmm. the race requires uh, that there's that consciousness, that awareness at all times. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, to find myself trying to teach students that awareness, Mm -hmm. it bothers me. It's something that it goes against my fabric as a person who who yeah. believes very much that we need to accept people as they are, not have mm-hmm. low expectations, don't get me wrong, but what I I'm saying is accept their culture and their heritage and within that framework move them forward. But, you know, again, we have businesses that they're going to have to work for someday, mm-hmm. colleges mm-hmm. they're applying to. So mm-hmm. so I, I consciously try to teach my students how to code switch because mm-hmm. they come from, uh, I teach in Kentucky, so okay. we have the Kentucky dialect combined sure. with the Latino, combined mm-hmm. with the Ebonics, combined with just whatever is brought in and, um, you know, simple subject verb agreement. And right. that is something that when a child is gifted and looking to fit in with a peer group, Mm-hmm. And they are trying so, I mean, because we haven't even scratched the surface of how oh, no, hard it have. is yeah. for the, mm-hmm. the, the minority gifted mm-hmm. in peers. I mean, right there is a whole nother conversation. But mm-hmm. to, to have that awareness and to know that around these people I have to switch language and, and code switch so much, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it's very, mm-hmm. very hard. And it just breaks my heart because what we're doing is we're 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 parceling out and cordoning off aspects of someone's personality and being and saying, mm-hmm. in this arena, you can express yourself this way. This is acceptable. In this way, it's, it's in over here, you can be who you are over here, and this is acceptable. But mm-hmm. by no means, you ever express this part of your history or your upbringing or anything unless you're in this little area. And so teaching people how to segment themselves, I think, does so much harm to our children. It does harm to the adults, but the children in particular, especially as we recognize them as gifted, and then we start grooming them for these mainstream institutions. 
mm-hmm. what we're doing is also forcing an awareness of their differences that they right. become acutely aware of. So I, anyway, well, I'm just you. I'm just verbalizing in my frustration as a teacher and as a person. It, but I'll, well, you brought up a good point, and I know you're right. I, I'm so excited with Joy. I want to have her back on and have a whole show about peers. But mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, I I did want to ask this question because it's it's such an important issue. I mean, it's an important issue as we've talked about just with the social challenges of autism and other learning disabilities and of course with gifted kids the the peer issue is huge but if you can joy give us your wisdom in telling um parents and educators what they might be able to do to support the friend, those friendships that can transcend race what can they do to help advocate with that issue well first of all they they, they must recognize that because we are part of a mainstream culture uh we are we are not uh, as segmented, uh, you know, on a general basis as uh, as it would appear to be, and particularly these gifted children, because they're going to become a part of, of a cultural group that it, that transcends their own cultural group, that goes beyond their own. There's going to be lots and lots of children that go, they're going to um, they're going to communicate with and and uh, develop very uh, deep relationships with. And a part of the fact that they're going to develop these deep relationships with these people is because of the fact that they are gifted. We know about the the intensities and we know about the passionate, you know, ideas that they have and the idealistic ideas they have about about human beings. And so they're going to see people for something beyond uh, just the the, the, the packets they, you know, that they're in. They're going to see the inside of that person. They're going to be drawn to them. So they're going to get into settings in the mainstream where they're going to have other race friends. And at the same time, they're going to also have a community that looks like them. They're going to be a part of the community. And uh, they may even have friends within that, that group. So what we, what we uh, discuss with parents, what I discuss with parents is, is helping their family as well as the child understand they will have relationships with others. And it's perfectly normal to have these other race relationships with people that they have things in common with. They have nothing to do with their um, their race that has nothing to do with their race and so other race friendships will develop especially when we get them into specialized programs and we have they have opportunities to travel you know they're going they're going to have to understand and start dealing with people for who they are and some of our families and some of our communities some of the adults the older people in the families they 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 are very good at helping us learn how to treat people for just who they are just as people. And then some, because they've been tamed, they've been hurt so much, um, they, they, they may teach the children how to put up a barrier, you know, and they say, be careful, don't trust them, you know, that sort of thing. So we, we have to face within our own selves the biases and discriminations that exist in order to help our own children, you know, to fare well once they get out there into that bigger, that bigger world. And so the whole issue of teaching them how to deal with uh, the acceptance of other race peers is, is really important. And the be- the parents who do be- who are best at that are the parents who um, who are more willing to uh, to function themselves within a assimilated society without losing who they are, you know. And so some right. and some are, are very good at it, and some are not. And the other issue, and I think one of you in your questions mentioned this whole issue of gender and how important it is for us to um, to to help our our males be comfortable with being a male no matter what environment they're in, and the female and all the the, the uh, gender stereotyping that goes right. on. So we right. have to be, you know, we, we, we have to be so cognizant of, of all those things. So the female, the black female who's in a science program, 
okay? She goes into a science mm-hmm. program in the summertime, and all of her peers in the summer program are white males. Okay, right. she's in the program and, and we've, she loves science, you know. But we've, had some, we've had authors on to talk about the STEM program and the prejudice against females. So you're yes. you're right, and we add another yes. layer to that. Add and now we've got layer. right, right. And so these and so um, you know you know sometimes uh, kids can be. Of course, we know that some of the cruelest beings you know on the earth. And and so these these white boys who are very bright and you know probably affluent, most of them would say to this little girl, "Are you sure you belong here?" And mm-hmm. are, are you sure you belong here has as much to do with the fact that she is a, is a black girl as is the fact that she's a girl, you know. So so she's mm-hmm. got to take that and figure out how am I going, what am I going to do with that kind of a feeling. And then the adult in the room, the, the teacher, the instructor in the room has, has got to know how to help them deal with their own behaviors. So they have to be a different kind of a person to be more accepting. We can't expect adult, young people to be more accepting and to um, and to be, we, I don't even I don't even like the word tolerant. I mean, I want us to be respectful and honor people. People tolerating them and honoring them are two different things. Uh, you tolerate a bug crawling on your leg, you know. <laughs> right, you right. Leg, you know that's tolerance. But you have to honor people for who they are and respect them for who they are. And and so yeah, this this layer that this extra layer of the gender um, peers that may cut across different groups. Uh, is a is a is a challenge for parents. So in parent training, that's one of the things that we talk about. I talk to parents about helping themselves and then helping their children um, be able to have relationships that transcend race, that transcend race. And that, it's our obligation once again. Um, it's our obligation to our children, uh, to this world that we live in today. If they're going to contribute and be the very very best person they can possibly be. We have got to teach them how to have those kinds of relationships, and we have to model that so they'll see us having the same types of relationships. Absolutely, and one one theme that we talk about a lot is in, in advocating for the, the, our own children and those that we um, that we teach and and we help and their parents is to go where you're celebrated, not where you're tolerated. And right. I, th- I think that's what you said, and I love that. Mm-hmm. One one last area, and then we'll wind down here, and that is um, something, of course, that that we share and. Temple Grandin, who helped us with um, Bright Not Broken, is it's just probably her number one area, and that is the role of mentors. So tell us mm-hmm. a little bit. I know you're passionate about that, too. You have a whole chapter mm-hmm. on it. Give mm-hmm. us just a little bit of insight about mentors. Well, again, you know, the mentor, uh, it can be a person who comes in many different forms and, and many different uh, ways to in, into a child's life. Uh, they don't always have to be just that professional that um, the child may connect with because they have an expertise the child may be interested in. But that mentor is someone who has a story to tell and who has had an experience or walked the path that the child may go and yet can come, has, has already walked the path and can tell the child that story. And, and stories, as we all know, strengthen our, our existence. You know, the story that somebody else has can connect with the story that we have is, is what really uh, can make a difference in the, in the child's life. And so, you know, I really think that uh, it behooves our families and our schools to work a little harder to share some of this uh, responsibility with these other individuals who, um, who are mentors who can help with a child because they have a background the child can identify with, they have a personal story that might be encouraging to the child, 
Uh, they may have done something so totally unique and so totally unexpected of them that they, they stand before a group of children or in front of two or three and say, you know, nobody expected me to do this, but, this, but look at what I was able to do. And so that, that human example uh, makes all the, can make all the difference in the world. Uh, Denzel Washington and one of his colleagues uh, wrote uh, that book called A Hand to Guide Me. And I read lots of books oh. for mentoring, but that book was probably one of the best I've ever read because it has lots and lots of stories about people who actually served as a mentor and some who didn't even realize they were being a mentor <laughs> who, uh, who guided this child um, into becoming the person that they were supposed to be, you know, into making an, a great accomplishment or, or getting beyond a, 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 a barrier, you know, jumping through a hurdle, you know, just doing something great. Denzel Washington himself talks about a lady who used to be one of his, his mother's clients in the, um, in the hair salon who always put a little, little bit of money in his hand and always encouraged him and said he was going to, be do, he was going to do something great when he grew up as a little boy. And he continues <laughs> to remember this woman because her, because her story and her encouragement to him. So he, he puts her into the category of a mentor because she encouraged him at the time that he needed it the most. And so that's who that mentor is. And so we, uh, again, as parents, as, uh, as educators, we, we also have another group of individuals who can help us out. And so we are, uh, as my grandma would say, duty-bound, you know, to actually find those people and put them into our circle of influence for this particular child. And, uh, and they may change, you know, from time to time, but also direct the children to find someone when they get out there in the world who, who can help encourage them when they, just when they need it the most. Um, that it could be once again, it could be the person with the expertise in the area where a child uh, needs it. Uh, but mentors will change, of course, with their development and with their experience. But I do think um, that that mentor uh, is someone who is a part of that group of, of catalysts. Uh, you know, Gagne, when he talks about those environmental catalysts that affect the life of a child, uh, the mentors in that group with those community people. So, I, you know, I do. I don't think that um, we can take this burden on all by ourselves. There's way too much to do. So we want to make sure we can share some of this and have other people help us with these wonderful well, people I'm, to make them. Mm-hmm. I've made a note about that book, and, you know, Denzel Washington is one of my personal favorite um, actors. Mm-hmm. And aside from his gifted talents of acting, which, mm-hmm. of course, are phenomenal, it's his mm-hmm. strength of characters. I've watched him... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the public eye, I mean, he's mm-hmm. just been an excellent role model, and everyone Absolutely. knows in Hollywood <laughs> that that's not an easy task, no matter who you no. are. And no, his indeed. strength of his strength of family and of character, and and I know I had mentioned this to you. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of Kerry Washington, and actually, one of the lines you talked about earlier they they had in her her television show Scandal, where her father says to her, "You have to work twice as hard to have half That's of what right. they have." And I, mm-hmm. I, it just it was profound when I heard that then. But mm-hmm. I also what I want to say about her is she's involved with. Um, it's uh, one of the president's councils for the turnaround arts where she's talking mm-hmm. about the importance of getting the arts back into um, the schools. And mm-hmm. I really admire her for um, for mm-hmm. taking that. She's actually going into the schools in this program and helping encourage these 
these kids in the arts and how important they are. But um, mm-hmm. she's an excellent role model. I, I view her mm-hmm. as a young and up-and-coming Denzel Washington. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, I, yes. So far, her character has has been, you know, right online, and she's so encouraging, and it's exciting to see her involved in our youth and in these programs, especially for our gifted kids. Yes, it is. It so is. I'm 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 glad you mentioned that. I'm going to have to look for his book because I didn't know yes. he had a book. Yes. So that's good by me. Me. a yes. hand to guide me. I will be looking for that. Yes. Well, great, we great. thank you so much. Um, you're welcome. You're coming welcome. on our show, and um, is there anything you wanted to add, uh, Becky? No, no. I've just enjoyed the conversation greatly, and um, I've learned a lot and had a lot confirmed. Thank you so mm-hmm. much. You're welcome. You're very welcome. And I appreciate the, the opportunity to come on the show and to share. And I really have to say this to you both. I really appreciate your passion and your commitment oh, to the children that you serve and uh and your commitment to all these children who are who are so easily, you know, overlooked and so easily, you know, cast aside. Uh, and we do we have to come together. Uh we do have so many common issues and common concerns and until we start talking to people we really don't know uh what they know and what they share that we share, you know. And so That's it's right. always it's always good, you know. See I was tired when I started out. I'm not tired anymore. Now I'm not gonna be able to talk to people, maybe <laughs> <laughs> That's what our passion does. I know. Yeah, well, it when, does. I'm wild and, up now. I won't be able to go to sleep tonight. Yes. <laughs> it was oh. it was Jim Jim Webb and Janet Gore um, that uh, mentioned your book, and I was just really excited when they did and said we we must have her on the show, and, yeah. and I'm so glad we did. And and I'd I'd okay. love to continue this conversation, and we will. Um, you know, we'll we'll be able to share what we do. We'll keep up with what you do. And if, if sure. you would, before we go, tell us mm-hmm. where they can find Bright, Talented, and Black um, website, Twitter. Where can they find you? Okay, so uh, first of all, the Great Potential Press is the uh, publisher, and they are at giftedbooks.com. That's their, um, that's how you can find them quite easily, of course, at Amazon, but I would certainly point people, first of all, to go to Great Potential Press, to go to their website. Um, at Twitter, I am simply at Davis underscore joy, at Davis underscore joy. And I, I'm tweeting now more than ever and trying to connect with people with common concerns and and I put information out as much as I can. Uh, my, um, I have a blog spot, blog spot that has been very popular over the past uh, year or so. It's called We Are Gifted To All Together. dot blogspot. dot com. So that's www. dot w e a r e g i f t e d the number two. dot blogspot. Com. So, but if you actually just Google "We Are Gifted Too," it'll certainly show up. Uh, it is it's okay. increasingly popular. I've had people writing for me. Sometimes I write, and then I just kind of reach out. And I, as people have a great story to tell, again, I am trying to connect with individuals around the world who have common issues and common concerns. And I want to hear their stories. And I believe listening and sharing stories will make a difference in the lives of these children that we serve more than anything. 
So I really am excited about We Are Gifted Too. I also have a Facebook page uh, called We Are Gifted Too. And, of course, if you would like to friend me on Facebook, feel free to do so. I'm Joy Lawson Davis. Joy Lawson Davis. I'd love to friend you and be, be able to connect and share on Facebook as well. Well, you have certainly made yourself accessible, and that is just wonderful. And we are going to be sharing your information and continue to to tell folks that they, if they haven't read Bright, Talented, and Black, they need to, and they need to share it, especially okay. with their educators. So we we thank you so much, and um, You're we look forward to to having you back sometime for a follow up chat because this was great. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. I Okay, okay. Good night. Mm-hmm. Good, Good night. night.